welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. It's been a couple of months since I put out an episode. I have all kinds of reasons why uh, why that's been the case and that I would like to explain to you all. And there's uh, all kinds of things going on in my personal life over the last few months that certainly can explain some of that. But frankly, we don't have the time right now. Uh, we are in a political crisis moment. Everyone, of course, has their eyes trained on Iran, on the region there. And uh, the next moves, of course, I don't need to explain to anybody that we are on the brink of war at this moment. Uh, Donald Trump and his band of crazies and everything that they've done. So I'm happy to have Yasemin Mather back on the show. She's a returning guest dare I say, friend of the show at this point. Uh, Yasemin is the editor of the journal Critique. She is a senior researcher at Oxford University, and she is a founder of a very important organization, Hands Off the People of Iran, the website hopoi.org. Yasemin, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so help us understand where we are at this moment because uh, we're speaking right now on the morning of January 8th. Uh, it is very early in the morning here in the United States. It is uh, you know, mid-morning, I guess, over in Europe. And um, tell us where we stand at this moment and um, anything that you think that we need to know in order to understand and to put into context what the assassination of General Soleimani meant and the implications of that and how that's brought us to this point. Okay, um, let's start with uh, General Soleimani. He is a, was a veteran of the Iran-Iraq war. He was responsible for Revolutionary Guards activities outside Iran in the last probably three decades, two decades at least. And um, contrary to tradition, the Shia uh, tradition isn't to name necessarily military commanders before their deaths, but uh, he was cultivated as a figure. This wasn't simply the work of Iran. Uh, U.S. press and media, European press and media were going on about him as the man who defeated Daesh. And the Islamic Republic didn't mind that, obviously. Uh, but the cult of personalities that developed about him wasn't just from inside Iran, it was international. I was looking at a CNN film about him. New Yorker had a biography of him. These are all long before uh, last week's events. Um, I believe Time magazine had him on his cover and so on. So in terms of where Iran um, felt under attack or was consolidating its allies in the region, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, um, Soleimani was a, an important figure. Having said that, it doesn't mean he's irreplaceable or that uh, single commanders win uh, wars um, on, their, on their own. They obviously this was an operation and he was the man for it. Um, in some ways, it's very difficult to understand uh, the rationale be behind the attack last week, uh, the, his targeted assassination. I think there's nothing else we can call it. It was a targeted assassination. Um, imminent threats that he was presenting is really making the 45-minute uh, Saddam bombing of Europe look like uh, a serious contention. Um, I see that some people are calling it the Bettelheim um, danger, which means that you don't need to prove there is an imminent danger, you don't even need to prove that there will ever be a danger, but you have intelligence that might indicate that at some stage this person might act differently to what you expect. Um, my guess is that for the Trump administration, it was only internal um, consumptions that made them take such a foolish act. I will explain why I think it's a foolish act, not only in terms of war, but also in terms of inside Iran. Um, <clears throat> clearly, as um, various generals, military people have said, no risk assessment was done about this, or if it was done, the answers were dismissed, and we, we are where we are. Um, the fact that uh, the Iraqi 
acting premier keeps telling us that he was there to discuss a message of peace exchanged between Iran and Saudi Arabia is extremely worrying uh, uh, in terms of the timing of his uh, assassination. Um, the internal um, issues for Trump, I don't think you will know a lot more about it, but I don't think it's just the issue of impeachment. I think uh, there was a pressure by sections of even anti-Trump media in the United States that nothing had been done regarding Aramco's, um, Iran's um, involvement, possible involvement in the uh, attacks on Aramco oil fields, the drone that was brought down and all the rest of it. So I think both of these compelling factors, um, uh, responding to critiques about not doing anything in a year of election where it must be good if you're in a war situation, even if it's a Cold War, um, all of these played a factor. Uh, let me finish this section by saying that the initial reaction to this event couldn't have been a better New Year gift for Iran's Islamic Republic than what Trump did. One, because Soleimani is replaceable, it, there is no doubt. Two, because sanctions have affected the country's economy, politics so much that it is unlikely, contrary to what Pompeo says or Trump says, that uh, Iran could wage, if you like, a new war or extend its wars or even uh, before this, there was um, opposition to Iran in Lebanon and Iraq. Um, only a few weeks ago, the embassy in Kabbalah was set on, the consulate in Kabbalah was set on fire. All of this changed overnight, all of this. And uh, clearly Iran played the victim and was the victim, if you like, because it's an act of war. You can't assassinate a senior general and not people consider it as just a, another, this is not like a, killing al-Baghdadi or bin Laden after their organizations are defeated and at, a, at times when you pretend these people have no state sponsors. I have always maintained that Daesh, Islamic State, has state sponsors um, in the Arab world. Uh, but, um, you know, to do something like the kind of assassinations that the U.S. did um, was starting a war. Um, is the United States um, intelligence community uh, ignorant of how Shia responses to something like this would be, I assume those who advised Trump didn't know. Uh, what we have witnessed, uh, and that's why I say this is really, uh, was really an initially at least a gift to Iran's Islamic Republic, is that uh, uh, the threats that Trump made after the assassination, I believe in response to statements sent, messages sent via the Swiss embassy to the United States. The way Trump responded uh, to this um, was to say, I'll bomb 52 cultural centers, civilians, and anything um, if Iran retaliates. Well, last night Iran has retaliated. We'll speak about that later. But this statement on its own uh, really raised the temperature in terms of people becoming extremely nationalist, patriotic, defense of Iran, priority. Um, it, you know, there were protests about neoliberal economic policies only in late November. But all of those were overshadowed by this fear of war, which is very strong in Iran. People who don't know it um, haven't followed what's going on. So um, I was not at all surprised that huge crowds appeared on the processions for Soleimani. And in this way, I think the, the regime gained because it consolidated its internal um, factions. They are all now in one with one voice, and they have uh, the patriotic feelings of Iranians who poured into the streets of Tehran two days ago, Kerman, unfortunately, with a stampede. But most 
importantly, the first day, the day when Soleimani's body arrived uh, in Athos, a southern city, um, once at, um, where the Arab population has been um, unhappy uh, with aspects of uh, the government's policy. And at the same time, we had this really um, Saudi finance interference in that province for the last few years. The show of force in Ahvaz, when I saw it, uh, was amazing. And I think that is what the Islamic Republic wanted. And in many ways, until now, until now, and I stress things could change dramatically today even, um, they have been the winner of um, this targeted assassination. Just as a follow-up on that, Yasmin, there's a meme that goes around in the West pretty much any time you see demonstrations of this kind, whether in Venezuela or in Syria or in Iran or anywhere where crowds of that kind couldn't possibly be there under anything other than coercion. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the extent to which that may be at least somewhat true, the extent to which what you witnessed in those videos and what you've heard from your contacts tells you that the outpouring that we saw, the mass outpouring, is entirely genuine? I would say these were large crowds. They were mixed. They weren't just the supporters of the regime. The non-supporters of the regime wouldn't have been able to, um, if you like, um, wouldn't have gone because there was no coercion. There is no... Um, okay, so in some demonstrations they say, or for voting, they say if you don't have a stamp for voting, uh, you won't be able to... Um, you know, keep your job or whatever. Uh, those are the types of soft coercions Iran does. But uh, the mix of the crowd, the, the type of people who went, many of whom aren't traditional or in any way supporters of the Islamic Republic, um, I think these were large crowds. Of course, a lot of people stayed away. And of course, we have to say, and I want to stress this, this is the demonstrations weren't just about Soleimani. The gift, the second gift that Trump gave the Islamic Republic was to say, I will bomb 52 places. And that mobilized people. Um, if you follow the social media, if you talk to people inside Iran, everyone has their own um, cultural place where they fear these bombs will fall. Um, Persepolis is named by some people, the shrine of Imam Reza is named by other people. So inside the country, there is a very strong feeling that um, he's threatening us with 52 bombs, he's done a targeted assassination, he's in a, um, if you like, difficult situation internally, maybe he will do the 52 bombings that he's talking about. And that kind of thing mobilizes nationalists, patri patriots, but also opponents of the regime, opponents who um, might not like the Shia government, but are definitely um, very strongly um, Iranian. And uh, what about the very large and to, to some extent, influential diaspora, uh, particularly in the United States and in some other Western countries, which is certainly not uh, pro-regime oriented. What kind of reactions have you heard from there? I think we have two completely opposite reactions. So some people have, um, and I can't tell you the percentage because, the, because social media can give us such a false picture of one or another side. But the two... Uh, uh, completely different reactions have been from um, royalists and Mujahideen have uh, regime change people basically who are um, saying, oh good, it was Iran's fault anyway, Iran was interfering in Libya, in, in, sorry, in Syria, in Iraq, it's a good job they killed him. Um, I, uh, and then we have the, um, if you like, sections of exiles who might have been uh, supporters of the reformist faction. Some of them are exiles from 2009, the Green Movement. These people are taking a more um, nuanced view. So some of them are saying um, uh, Iran is Iran, irrespective of who is, who is in power, we will support our country. I mean, how this will make 
show itself is very difficult to say, but that is the impression they are giving, that we will support our country. Um, there are those, and very few um, uh, amongst the left, who have pointed out um, the op their opposition to uh, the US acts, the Trump administration's warmongering and so on, but at the same time remind us that uh, uh, only five weeks ago, six weeks ago, um, the poor uh, shantytown dwellers, the poor citizens of Iranian cities were demonstrating about the price of fuel, uh, the abolition of subsidies on fuel, and they were targeted um, by revolutionary guards, by the security services, and therefore we should take a much more nuanced approach opposing the US, uh, but taking into account um, internal issues as well. Uh, I think that's true. It's strange that amongst royalists, um, clearly, um, and regime change royalists, who are very close to um, the Trump administration, and I assume had, in one way or another, had told the US administration, oh, you see, you, you killed Soleimani or do something, the regime will collapse. Um, amongst these people, there is um, quite a debate going on. On the one hand, they're all very, at least on paper or, um, or interviews, media interviews, they're all very nationalist, uh, but on the, and therefore can't defend Trump saying I'll bomb 52 places. But on the other hand, some of them are um, uh, actually uh, opposing now their own former allies. They're saying uh, we shouldn't get money from the US for regime change. Most notable voice amongst those is the Shah's former, former foreign policy, foreign minister, and in fact, an ex-son-in-law of the Shah, Ardeshir Zahedi, um, who has given what I would call the biggest praise of Soleimani I have heard in the last few days, and is saying it's our nationalist duty to uh, support um, Iran against Trump. Anything related to Iran, any kind of a conflict related to Iran is almost by definition a regional conflict. Uh, that because, of course, Iran has involvement in, in Iraq, in Syria through various proxies, but also because of simmering conflicts that Iran has had for quite a long time, uh, conflicts with um, Qatar, conflicts with Saudi Arabia, of course, the United Arab Emirates, uh, some warming of relations with Qatar in recent years because of the other conflicts in the Gulf. So I want to just ask you, how do, uh, what is your sense of Iran's view towards the region given this crisis? I mean, we heard just in the last 12 hours uh, officials from Iran saying that if there is an attack on Iranian soil, they can expect bombings in Dubai and Haifa, Israel. The extent to which that's true or just bluster is probably a matter of debate. But what's your read on the regional situation and how Iran would respond? Okay. Um, there is, everyone does talk about Iran's uh, interference in other countries. Let's put this in a historic context, right? Because it's true, and what I personally don't, uh, don't think a country that uh, claims it hasn't got enough money to pay workers who are employed by the state or state contractors for months should uh, be so generous in its uh, war efforts or so um, spend so much in its war efforts outside the borders of its own country. But let us put this in a historic context. Iran is uh, doing all of this as a result of a silly war. Um, it, an idiotic prime, uh, prime minister in the UK, Blair and Bush, had it not been for the overthrow of, of Saddam's Iraq, we wouldn't be where we are now. Iranian government officials, in my opinion, are paranoid as, as a result of the positions they've gained. And Saudis are paranoid. Saudis and Israelis keep going on about Iran becoming a strong power in the region. Why did Iran become a strong power in the region? Because the United States bombed two of its worst enemies, the Taliban and Saddam in Iraq. And Saudi Arabia then, uh, 
in my opinion, saw this, and that's why we had the rise of these jihadi Salafi movements in Iraq, in Syria, I believe to a certain extent, much less, but to a level in um, uh, Lebanon. And so if we put that in this context, Soleimani was, and the Revolutionary Guards are, um, the representation of Iran's interest outside, outside its borders for what they feared most, and that is the arrival of Daesh, Islamic State, inside Iran. Um, maybe that's a, that was a false paranoia, but there were reasons to believe that if you're in, if Islamic State is 50 kilometers from the Iranian border in Iraq, and given the kind of financial support some Arab countries officially or unofficially were giving it, there was the possibility that Daesh would find allies inside Iran, and there were operations by Daesh inside Iran. So, can I just, can I just interject very quickly and sure. just add, and just add that uh, it's not, from my perspective at least, it's not it's in no way paranoia because we have it's obvious that the Islamic sure. State was all through Iraq. We of course know a couple of years ago the big worries that were in the Washington Post and the New York Times about the Islamic State's arrival in Afghanistan and linking yeah. up with some of the uh, uh, networks in Afghanistan. And then of course people forget that Iran shares an expansive border with Pakistan in the Sistan. Baluchistan province. And of course, you have long-standing decades of terrorist activity there from the Jundala organization, many other terrorist groups there. And there were worries, of course, that the Islamic State might begin to infiltrate on its eastern border. So at least from my perspective, I don't think it's paranoia at all. No. Okay, you are right. All I'm saying is that, okay, so this wasn't paranoia in that level. But then when the Saudis uh, were forced, or the Kuwaitis or whoever, were forced by the United States to accept the defeat of the Salafis and the Jihadis, Iran didn't need to keep getting involved, is my assessment. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think once Islamic State was defeated, then Iran uh, could have, maybe could have um, reduced its um, interventions. However, this was a process, as you say, that had started. So maybe it was impossible to, uh, if you left, for example, Iraq on its own, um, maybe Islamic State would have made a comeback, would make a comeback now even. You see, so yeah, I have just, I just, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting or legitimizing what Iran was doing in these other countries. I'm merely saying that I think from the broader uh, global perspective, uh, the Islamic State was on the march. And uh, I think it's very clear that Iran was in the crosshairs. And I think that that's uh, just objectively fact. Very true. No, I, I have no disagreement with that. I entirely agree with you. Um, the slogan of Daesh was Dam Damascus today, Tehran tomorrow. So, um, if I was probably sitting in a military room in Iran with leaders of the Islamic Republic, I would say, let's defeat them before they get to Iran. I entirely agree with you. Uh, but I think there is also, for a Shia Republic, where we have always been um, celebrating victimhood, something changed in terms of celebrating victory. And that in the long term might not have been in the interests of Iran. But I leave it at that. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying um, Iran shouldn't have got involved uh, in Iraq. It's Blair, Bush and Blair that made Iran involved in Iraq. Um, it was their occupation government that had close ties with Iran. At the time, they were so blinded by overthrowing Saddam, they didn't even consider the implications of that move. And that's history. That's a fact. So we can't change that. So bringing us back to today, where we stand now, and again, we're recording on the morning of January 8th, 2020. I realize that much could change between now and when people are actually listening to our conversation here. But um 
I, I, I asked a little bit about the regional dynamic uh, from your perspective, partially because everything related to Iran's conflict with the United States is a global matter because China and Russia are, of course, involved in various ways and have various interests. And so uh, from the perspective of um, global politics, do you see the opportunity for actual diplomacy here, given that the nuclear agreement is gone, given that the top general in Iran has been assassinated, given everything that's happened? I mean, is diplomacy an option, or is this going to morph into a low-intensity conflict that we're going to witness for the next decade or two? It's, um, if the retaliations that happened is the last that we see, and there is no response to it. Uh, we shall see. The, we shall see if Saudi Arabia, maybe the United Arab Emirates, will continue the policies they started a few months ago, which is a kind of rapprochement with Iran. And in that situation, then we can expect long-term changes in the way things develop. But if that doesn't happen, if the United States does attack Iran, um, not just today, but in the next few months, I would say, um, we can expect a far worsening of the situation. And the countries of the region, for all their own internal interests, will be involved. Um, I've already talked about Saudi Arabia and the Arab population of Khuzestan, I can't see the United States envisaging um, a war like the war in Iraq about Iran. It's, in, it's militarily impossible, given the terrain, given the uh, uh, surface of the country. It's a very, it's a huge country. And the fact that, more importantly, there can't be much appetite for foot soldiers arriving on Iranian soil. If that scenario, if you look at that scenario, I think the United States um, policy and under Trump is the destruction of the country Iran, the creation of um, independent, so-called independent national nationalist states with close connection or even joining up existing countries. So, for example, we have the Iranian Kurds, who have been repressed terribly, I have uh, no doubt, but uh, aligning themselves with Iraqi Kurdistan, maybe um, creating a joint uh, republic, the Baluchi Iranians joining Pakistan. And in all of these circumstances, what uh, this would involve, uh, if you like, bombing centers of government, centers of military intelligence, centers of military power, nuclear plants, and so on, to weaken the center, create these civil wars, which in my opinion would be very bloody and very long. This is not going to be like Iraqi Kurdistan, but most, there's a small area, most of the people didn't want Saddam and therefore allied themselves with US what we will see in any of these national, uh, nationality areas uh, will be long civil wars. Um, but the achievement for the Trump administration would be to solve the Iran question once and for all, i.e. there will be no more Iran. Sorry, that sounds quite a negative thing to say, but that's, I think someone has this plan. From what I can hear, that is the plan. Yeah, balkanization, uh, a balkanization type model is something that we've seen implemented in a number of places, and it's uh, absolutely within the realm of possibility. And I think uh, the other the other point on this, and this is my last question before we head to a break here, but. Um, the Iranians don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of conventional military capability to really, uh, you know, wage war 
regionally. I mean, they have the ballistic missiles, of course, but beyond that, there's not a lot that they would do to countries like Saudi Arabia, etc., militarily. But of course, the Iranians are uh, deeply connected to all Shiite movements throughout the region, and there's a vibrant uh, Shiite, uh, uh, oh, I don't want to say vibrant, but certainly a Shiite uh, um, minority in the Katif province of Saudi Arabia, which is very anti-regime there. We could see Iran begin to stir up uh, civil war conflicts in all of the other countries in the region as well. So it wouldn't necessarily just be Iran that would be targeted for balkanization and civil war. That's true. However, all I would say is for 40 years, 41 years, Iran has been a problem for the United States. I stress it's not even an anti-imperialist country, but Iran has been the problem. So the, the first intention is to, cre is to destroy Iran. Whether they have looked at the subsequent, um, if you like, uh, changes, revolutions, civil wars in the region, I think they haven't even contemplated seriously what, what bombing Iran means at this current state of um, nationalism, patriotism. So you are right. Iran has those capabilities. The capabilities that is being discussed and um, was used last night and can be used later is uh, rocket capability. On that, Iran isn't um, weak as far as I can see. And if you like, all the talk in the last year has been to add uh, limitation of Iran's um, uh, rocket capabilities to the nuclear agreement. Um, and Iran has refused this partly because it could envisage a situation like this week and it can use land-to-land um, -land missiles uh, to a number of places. My understanding is that current destination for these rockets are some of the Gulf countries, in, in Persian Gulf countries, but also, as you rightly pointed out, uh, other countries, Lebanon being um, a possibility. Having said that, I don't think the U.S. is really trying to, uh, hasn't thought about what would happen if uh, Iraq disintegrates and we have a rise of Islamic State again, because Islamic State isn't dead, it's still there, and we could see a re return of that. I don't think the United, the current administration in the United States has looked at what might happen in Lebanon, where Hezbollah is a legitimate party, whether they like it or I like it or don't like it, it is part of the government. Uh, what would they do about Christian Lebanese people who seem to think Iran is a savior, not the enemy? So there is a whole number of complicated issues that uh, one has to take into account when, when planning military action. And I don't see that foresight in the current US administration. I must admit previous administrations haven't been better, but these lots are really quite ignorant of the region. The ignorant is, is quite generous. All right, let's take a quick break. Um, we'll continue the conversation. I want to talk a bit about some of the other internal dynamics in Iran and some of the other fallout from this. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Yasemin Mather. Of course, the uh, all the news of the day, all the talk is about the uh, the being on the brink of war with Iran. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. That's the reality. So. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the break about some of the regional dynamics, but I want to return to Iran and the internal dynamics there, because for a lot of us, um, for obvious reasons, it's a rather opaque country, a somewhat opaque society in the sense that, you know, we don't necessarily fully appreciate the uh, the psyche of the Iranian people or some of the internal dynamics, internal conflicts, etc. So help us to understand um how you think this changes, and I know you've talked a little bit about it, but how you think this changes the dynamics inside of Iran? Obviously, we see more national unity, patriotism, all of those things are to be expected, but those can also be rather ephemeral. Can you talk a little bit about some of the structural issues, uh, economic problems, and other things that were front and center before this, and the extent to which those things might uh, continue to play a role inside the country? Very uh, important, yes, you are right. So I think we can say that since the early 1990s, um, Iran has followed with variations the general politics of um, the world capitalist system. Um, Some people think Iran is isolated and only deals with China and Russia. That isn't true. Iran is... um, accepted loans from the International Monetary Fund. It is very clearly involved in policy making in terms of economy with what the IMF instructed to do. And many people go on that the unbelievable privatization that has happened in Iran is not really privatization because uh, state factors are owners of the new or people related to the state. That's nonsense. Uh, Privatization in in, uh, countries where, um, wherever it has happened, I would even say in Europe, but let's say in the developing world, privatization always benefits those uh, close to power. um, uh, And therefore, there is this huge uh, gap between the rich and the poor in Iran, um, mainly thanks to following neoliberal economic policies as directed by world organizations. In this respect, if you read the IMF reports about Iran, you will see that they often praise these privatizations, even though some of the privatizations might be a section of Iran's revolutionary guards buys a company, but there are individuals involved in that and they become rich. So it is capitalist privatization, whether you like it or not. Um, that's what happens when you follow neoliberal economic policy. The only criticisms that IMF had of Iran was subsidies. And Iran has gradually removed these subsidies. The last of these was removing the oil the fuel subsidies in late November, November 20, something like that. And of course, we saw that eruption of uh, uh, poorer sections of population who really can't live with more expenses. Inflation is, you can take various figures, but it's very high. Some say 40%, some say 25%, but it's very high. Unemployment because of sanctions, is very high. Major factories left Iran between 2017 and now, when Trump came to power and withdrew from JCPOA. You also have to remember that European countries who had investment in Iran were threatened by the United States to face secondary uh, uh, penalties uh, if they um, circumvented Iran's um, U.S. sanctions rather than global sanctions, because international sanctions were eased in um, after the nuclear agreement. So Iran's economy has contracted. It has a lot of problems. Inevitably, there is also corruption. But as I've said before, uh, corruption is actually states that impose this type of sanctions global powers that impose sanctions they know that this will increase corruption cronyism and will make the people in power much richer and the poor much poorer but this is part of the scenario because then you can 
um, create chaos, riots, and so on. And that's exactly what's been done about Iran. So uh, the protesters in November were uh, very much against the it is unbelievable gap between the rich and the poor, the result of the Islamic Republic's economic policies. Uh, they were furious because fuel prices will be reflected in the price of everything else they buy, in addition to an exchange rate against dollars that is collapsing every month. Is the rate is falling every month. So these protesters um, and the protests, um, January 2018, we saw similar protests. These are the protests of the poor, of the um, uh, of uh, the unemployed, and at the moment, I can't see them continuing. But of course, we can't predict anything right now. So a war economy might actually benefit Iran in short term. Um, but at the moment, I think the, the, the feeling is we want to keep the country, never mind anything else. I, do, I can't see those problems going away uh, because we are seeing increasing sanctions and that in itself will uh, raise uh, uh, prices, will make the situation, the life, ordinary life more difficult for Iranians. Um, so we don't know, but um, it's a very dark situation in that. That's why one of the reasons I think this, the, the actual assassination helped the Islamic Republic is that it was facing protests, it was facing um, major um, demonstrations, and um, now the situation is different. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I think it's important uh, for us, if we could, to try to also get a sense of the political terrain uh, if, from you. And what I mean by that is help us to understand how the political dynamics, uh, well, how they've stood to this point and how they might change. Of course, in Iran, you have this sort of factionalized uh, political um uh, what do you want to call it, conflicts, wherein you have a sort of a more Western-oriented uh, clique in, in power now. That would be Rouhani and Zarif. Uh, you also, of course, have a more hardline faction, uh, whether of the previous administrations like Ahmadinejad or some of the others that are considered hardliners close to the Revolutionary Guard. There is also the circles around uh, Rafsanjani and those who kind of straddle the line between these two other camps. So how should we read these internal political dynamics? Are we going to see them kind of become less, the, the differences become less stark as there is a national unity push? Are we going to see these political divides growing as differences over strategy and positioning uh, take more effect? How do you read this political situation? What we witnessed, at least in the even before last week, but definitely since last week, is that uh, the government and the, if you like, uh, conservative clerics, senior clerics close to Hamni are acting in one go. So the unity is quite strong. I was quite surprised that Zarif, for example, announced earlier this morning that that was it, the retaliation of Iran is finished. So you can see that uh, presumably the councils that are deciding and worth meeting this week to respond to the Soleimani um, assassination are coming out with a single voice. Whether internally when they meet there are completely um, different uh, tactics, strategies, and then eventually somebody intervenes, the supreme leader intervenes, or they come to a compromise between them, I don't know. But all I can say is that we are seeing an unprecedented um, if you like, um, unprecedented um, unity in those two main factions. Now, Iran has many more factions uh, within those two bigger groups, and no one knows how, if they are actually coming to some kind of agreement. But on, in terms of those who have influence mili about military um, retaliation, those who have influence regarding political decisions, 
there seems to be, and I, I'm an outsider, so I can only judge by the speeches and the announcements, uh, there seems to be complete unity. Um, some of you might recall that Zarif resigned uh, for uh, 24 hours um, sometime, I think, in 2019, when he thought Soleimani was being seen globally as um, like the official for, foreign minister. There were a lot of rumors that uh, Assad arrived in Iran and Zarif didn't know, but Soleimani knew, and uh, that led to that resignation. In fact, after that, Soleimani and Zarif appeared together and uh, congratulated each other on their revolutionary career. Already beginning to change, but now um, this is now complete unity. Um, this doesn't mean that um, there are not differences of opinion about um, what to do in Iraq, what to do in Lebanon. Uh, but I can't see it coming out into open conflict in the short term. Um, you probably are also asking about um, people who are not involved in the government inside the country. I think the opposition in exile is in such a terrible, terrible state. One shouldn't even talk about them. I mean, people who cheer Trump's warmongering um, must be out of their mind. Uh, and therefore, I just don't want to talk about them. But inside the country, um, we still have labor activists who were arrested after the protests in the sugarcane factory in um, Iran. Some of them are facing 10, 11 year jail sentences. And of course, if you count those types of issues, we um, the state's repression should change if it wants to maintain support amongst the ordinary people of Iran. And I can't see that happening because one of the one of the effects of this state of war and sanction is uh, that any protest, even if it is against closure of a factory, privatization and so on, the state labels it as an act of uh, spying for foreign powers. And in this, the spies get away with it, because if all prisoners are accused of being spies of foreign powers, then uh, you really can't find the real spies, can you? Um, and we do have uh, labor activists who are still in prison. We have uh, environmental activists who are in prison. Um, and I can't see uh, a relaxation of those types of repressive policies, at least now. We might even witness worse because the state would then be worried about uh, uh, repercussions of um, US spies within the country and the paranoia will take over. One of the things that I always find fascinating when people talk about Iran is this idea, it just, I don't know if this is just pure sort of Orientalist chauvinism or, you know, whatever it is, but, um, you know, th this idea that uh, Iran is like, you know, m more akin to Afghanistan than it is to a European country, as if Iran is not a highly educated, advanced, technologically advanced society, etc. Um, and and the, reason I, the reason I bring that up is because... Um, um, I, I want to get a sense from you of how much um, the people in Iran are following our own internal dynamics here in the United States and understanding the role that Iran plays as a whipping boy for U.S. politics, uh, the extent to which that is commonly understood. And I mean, obviously, when you're on the brink of war, it doesn't really matter. But um, I, I guess I want to understand the Iranian psychological perspective on the United States internally inside of Iran, Iranian right. people? Right. First of all, Iran is a very young country. I think we, we covered this when we were speaking a while back. But um, this young population is highly educated. Uh, there are universities in almost every city. I'm frightened when I read the number of universities in Iran. And okay, some of them are not very um, academically superior to neighboring countries. But there are some very good universities as well in Iran. And the young population 
does go to university as a majority, not everyone, but quite a lot do. But even who, those who don't, the, the way in which internet has now covered the country makes it um, a very different place to what people expect. Most young Iranians get their news from social media or from the internet. Very few are influenced by the, if you like, national television or radio station, unless they are very close supporters of the Islamic Republic. And therefore, yes, the, 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 I feel I'm almost in Tehran many days when I read the social, the people's social media pages, when they report about demonstrations, about protests. There is a problem in that the Islamic Republic has created an illusion that bourgeois democracy uh, is heaven, not because, but only because it keeps deriding any form of democratic opposition. And therefore, young people have many illusions about uh, freedom of expression, freedom of political organizations, which exist in Europe or the United States. I'm not denying it, but what they don't seem to realize is the influence of capital in controlling that media. Uh, for example, a lot of people can't un understand why uh, Corbyn didn't get elected in Britain. If you follow British press, if you know how the media manipulates news in Britain, if you follow uh, the way um, the likes of Murdoch and owners of major um, media establishments um, affect the uh, political mind here, then you, you're not surprised that Corbyn can't win, even though I always thought he was quite a mild uh, social democrat by uh, German standards. I'm told he would have counted as a very moderate uh, social democrat. Um, but the perceptions are quite skewed. So there is this illusion that the United States is a very free country, that everyone is well off. The one thing that exiles who are slightly more intelligent have managed to do is portray the realities of uh, the countries they live in, Canada, US, Britain, France, to inside Iran. And of course, I can't tell you what percentage of population have read more to understand those, but I think most people, for example, are aware of Trump's impeachment in, in the current situation. Most people in Iran are also um, hoping, uh, maybe mistakenly, but they're hoping that the Trump administration will not be in power after November 2020, and therefore sanctions release. This is irrespective of whether they are pro-government or anti-government. Right? And I would say most young people don't like the government for various reasons. They see it as uh, um, the cause of their unemployment, even if you look at the nuclear case, these highly educated, very intelligent young people are unemployed. Uh, many of them drive the equivalent of Uber to make up money, do private teaching, but that doesn't really give them a proper job. So we are constantly seeing um, people describing very hard conditions inside the country for which they blame the Islamic Republic. But in addition to this, the Islamic Republic, until recently at least, was trying to influence how people um, behave socially in terms of segregation of celebrations, in terms of wearing the hijab. All of this has in practice been relaxed, but it doesn't mean that the youth are satisfied. Uh, what do I, why do I say it's relaxed? Well, there are idiotic campaigns abroad about hijab and why we should fight for uh, removing the headscarf in Iran. If you look at the uh, processions of, uh, for the death of Soleimani, you will see women wearing absolutely no headscarf with blonde hair in the demonstrations and revolutionary guards are right next to them and nothing is happening. I believe that in the cities of Iran nowadays, if you don't wear your headscarf, you're not immediately arrested. Um, I'm not saying this is either a minor issue or one shouldn't be concerned about it. All I'm saying is the two sides have learned to live with each other, but it doesn't mean that the youth don't want more freedom in terms of 
um, abolition of segregation, abolition of uh, the rules about hijab, and so on. So, um, and in these respects, um, these horrible, really trashy TV stations that Saudi Arabia pays for, Israel pays for broadcasting inside Iran, are really um, building up this image of the West as a fantastic place. They had a reporter on one of these TV stations saying, uh, I go, uh, police in London are so kind to people. And uh, well, if you've ever been on a proper demonstration in Britain, you know that's not true. It depends <laughs> where you are and how you are protesting, I assume. Um, so I, I want to give you um, I know I'm not answering black and white your question, but all I'm trying to say is that they are aware of some things, but they're also victims of a massive propaganda that portrays the West as uh, heaven, basically. Now, in the uh, just the last couple of minutes that we have here, I know that it would be absolutely foolish of me to ask you to try to predict what uh, the Trump administration might do. Trump is uh, not someone that is necessarily easily predicted, but um, I'd like to just get a sense from you on 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 what you think, um, not necessarily what you think is going to happen, but what you're looking for, uh, what you're really focused on in say the next 24 hours, 48 hours, and then of course from there in the medium term and potentially in the long term, because I could see a number of ways that this could go. Um, but I'd like to get a sense from you, given your understanding of the, uh, the psychology of the leadership in Iran and of the Iranian people broadly, how you think Iran might uh, act moving forward and what we should expect internationally. What I would hope, not necessarily true, is that uh, this would be the end of this particular episode, i.e. Um, there was a targeted assassination. Iran has taken some action. Iran will be taking further political actions, but clearly they've now said, this is it, we've done the bombing and that's it. If that was the case, then we could return to a level of normality. Nothing will be normal again. I think the government has benefited, as I said, from the situation. And so we will need to see um, whether we will, um, if we get back to a normal situation, yes, I expect um, protests to continue. I expect maybe um, sections of the state releasing or reducing some some of the forms of repression to maintain this national unity they've gained so far. But, I, but on the other hand, um, earlier this week, I was thinking that even if Iran does not retaliate, there is a chance that the United States will find any excuse, the Bettelheim scenario I was telling you before, uh, any uh, excuse to um, bomb Iran. Uh, because it's an election year, because Trump has many problems internally, and because once you've taken a foolish step, such as the assassination of last week, it might not look good if you then retreat from that situation, that position. The worst scenario I can expect is this massive bombing that keeps being mentioned by Trump, by Pompeo, by various other um, U.S. administration people. Um, and that will be a disaster. For Iran, it will be a disaster. Uh, as I said, it will be the beginning of the end of a country called Iran, in my opinion. Um, and it will be a disaster for the region, because the civil wars that will happen in Iran will have effects in neighboring countries. Absolutely, um, I think that's uh, I think that's very um, I think that's very likely, and um, I, I just don't know. You know, at this point, at this point, I. I don't know what to think because, you know, a few years ago I thought that, uh, you know, this was all 
sort of predictable and, and somewhat formulaic. You could follow the ruling class, you could follow capital, and you could understand uh, these things. But in the in the era of Trump, I don't think that that is necessarily the case anymore. And so, really, it's just a matter of wait and see. As we as I said, it's the morning of January eighth, twenty twenty. I don't know when you're all listening to this, and I don't know what's happened between now and then. But um, here we are, sitting here waiting. Yasemin Mather, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, Yasemin is the editor of a very important journal, Critique. She is a senior researcher at Oxford University, and she is a director of Hands Off the People of Iran, H-O-P-O-I.org. Yasemin, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Listeners, thank you again. We'll chat real soon.